Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. Good morning, Appalachia. We are back with another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today we're going to be talking about, once again, probably more the part two of Jesus in Hades. Sort of. Not Sheol, yeah. But... Well, Sheol, yeah, is a great episode. And the episode we did, I think it was last year on Halloween. We did. It was, just, was it called Halloween? It might have been... All Hallows Eve. All Hallows Eve, you said? It was, it was something like that. It was uh, something around the uh, plan words around that. Uh, okay. Tritium. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah, the, the All Hallow Tide. So, Josh, you were not on that episode because you were still living in the hood. Balmore. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. The, the Lord called you up out of Ur of the Chaldees. Good old Balmer. Yeah. So, the, the episode we talked about, All Hallow Tide, which is Halloween. All Saints Day and All Souls Day. We talk, remember we talked about that at length. And we also talked about the Lord's descent into the underworld in Sheol, yeah. Which has quite a number of listeners to it still in our, our uh, count. That was, a good, that was a good title. I'll, I'll give it to us. That was one of our better moments. Very, very clever title. Yeah. So while somebody had asked us to do more about the topography of hell, of Hades, of the underworld. So we'll revisit that in a minute. Um, but if you want more discussion on that, just go check out that, that whole episode. Dante tells me everything I need to know. Yeah. Yeah. Dante, Dante. Uh, and then we want to talk about Halloween a little bit because we had one of the, uh, the retired Bishop who was here in our, in our parish, Bishop Zampino was talking about to us the other day about someone who was talking to him about staying spooky. And so he, he went and talked to the, to the gentleman who said that to him. And began to talk about the dark side of Halloween that's celebrated. So I want to talk about Halloween again. And it will be some of the things that we said last year, but really kind of re, not rebuild, but build upon that for, for now, uh, for, for this episode. So let's begin by, by saying this. All right, Josh, I hope that you studied and prepared for this. I got to be honest. I did the best I could. Okay. Well, we're going we're gonna to reveal the best that you could. How's let's that? Let's do it. Let's do let's it. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> when Jesus died on the cross, where did he go? He descended into hell. What does that mean? I'm just repeating back what the... Uh, <laughs> what, what the um, He's like, do you disagree with me? Disagree with the creed. Come on, bring it, creed, man. Bring it. Creed. Yeah, he descended to the dead. Right, he descended. He descended to the dead. I'm sorry for that. Yeah, I know I messed up those words. No, no, you're. It's okay because in some of the older translations of the creed, it says he descended into hell. In Article Three of the Thirty Nine Articles, we have an article that specifically states, with one sentence, as Christ died for us and was buried, so also it is to be believed that he went down into hell. Capital H. A definite place. Now, the article is not talking about the hell of fire. It says into hell. What's it talking about? It's talking about Jesus' experience, the fullness of human death. Hmm. So his, he, he goes into the underworld, as 
Some translations render Hades or in uh, Tartarus in some places. And hell, as we have shared before, but very briefly, is composed essentially of five, five categories or five places, five receptacle of souls. I believe we used that when we talked about it last time. That was the lingo we used, receptacles. Yes, which is an old, it's a term that was used uh, by theologians in the past. You don't hear it a whole lot today. I prefer it, to be honest. It, it, it's kind of catchy. It is. You know, it sounds like a metal band. <laughs> that would be a great metal band. <laughs> so here at Ascension, we're going to start a metal band. It's going to be called the Receptacle, Receptacle of Souls. Souls. That's right. That's right. With t-shirts and, and lighting bolts and stuff. Um, so you, you've got Hades, which is the generic term that refers to the whole encompassing experience of the dead. Hades, she, which is Greek, Sheol and Hebrew, Inferno in Latin, and hell in Old English. So it just means the place of the dead. Right? Then you've got Tartarus. Tartarus is the underbelly of Hades and hell. Uh, Tartarus is the lower, lowest portion in hell that is reserved for demons of a particular kind that are still there. So Peter talks about the spirits that were, and so does Jude, that they rebelled in the days of the flood. Is that where the concept, where, I know we brought up Dante before, but where Dante Alighieri got the seven levels of hell from? Was it always no. there within the no, fathers? No, no, Dante creates his fictional work, his devotional fiction work, <laughs> by adapting theological premises that were true and then filling it out like, like he does. Bunyan does the same thing, but he does it from a different Christian paradigm, right? So no, no, that's not... Um, but in Tartarus are the demons that, that fell in the ancient world, if you will, to use it like that. And they were bound there. They can't get out. They're there till judgment. It was a term used in Greek mythology uh, where apparently Zeus like imprisoned um, you know, other people he was mad at or something. I, I don't keep up with Greek mythology, but we see the term used by the New Testament to talk about a prison of gloomy darkness for particularly rebellious angelic spirits. That's a big point because what it, indi what it implies is that there are demon powers that rebelled that are still holding their position and they're not in chains of darkness. And those demon powers that rebelled that are not in chains of darkness are today what we refer to as principalities and powers in Ephesians 6. But there's a whole other classification of them that rebelled. And if they are, as it seems to indicate in the text of Scripture, if they are the angels, the sons of God in Genesis 6, who forsook you know, something about their, their nature to become, um, you know, not to become human, but they, it's like a perverted form of the incarnation, right? And then they, you know, they, they take to themselves the daughters of men and they have children and giants were in the land in those days. And, and the Lord kills them in the flood and then they're imprisoned in Tartarus until the end. Hmm. Okay. So there's a whole different classification of demonic power there. They're not here. So you've got Hades, Tartarus. What's next? See if you remember these. Mm. I'm drawing blanks here. You want to know, like, as... What's next? What's next? Come on, come on. Our Hades. listeners are probably yelling at the radio right now. It's Tartarus. these... No, we already said Tartarus. So Hades, Tartarus... Sheol. Sheol and Hades are the same place. Hades, Tartarus, 
Can I get a hint? Can I get a hint? No, man. There's, this isn't, uh, do you want to be a millionaire? This is Appalachian Anglican. That's right on the tip of my tongue. There's three more. Wow. Three? Three. There's five receptacles of souls. Oh, my. You have paradise, but that's more. I mean. Paradise counts. Paradise counts. Paradise counts, or it's also called Abraham's bosom, right? Paul talks about being called up to paradise. So there's a shift in paradise, as it were. Uh, a lot, well, I say there's a shift in it. There's a belief by some that it's completely emptied when Jesus goes into Hades when he dies and he takes the people that are in paradise into heaven. The fathers don't agree on this. They say that paradise is still paradise where people go who serve and love the Lord, who are baptized, but they can't get to the beatific vision yet, which is to behold God in his glory. The fathers disagree on this. I want to say reformers disagree on this. Wesley talks in his letters about uh, even his friends, men that he knew were godly, how they're in the antechamber to heaven, which is paradise. So remember, Hades doesn't mean fiery death, right? It's not what it means. That's Gehenna. Gehenna is the other portion. my other one. That's it, yeah. So Gehenna and paradise are contrasting pictures, contrasting receptacles, but they both classify as being in Hades. So when Jesus spoke a lot about hell, of course, he used Gehenna, right? Often, often when he talks about the hell of fire, he's talking about Gehenna, which is fiery torment where, the, where dives, the rich man is, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is in paradise. He's in Abraham's bosom. The rich man is in, the, is in Gehenna, the hell of fire, and there's a great gulf between the two of them. And so what, ha- what happened at the Reformation is a number of scholars began to say, in agreement with some of the early church, that everybody that was in paradise was taken up into heaven, properly speaking. And so paradise is just an empty space. Other reformers kept with other portions of the fathers and the larger Catholic tradition that paradise is still occupied. People are there, and they're living in paradise, and in paradise now is the light from heaven, and they're waiting for something, the progress of their own conformity to the image of Jesus, before they are granted access into the beatific vision, to see God in heaven directly. And there are folks that will say, well, that's just not true. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You don't understand. You're making a a distinction that doesn't exist in paradise. To be in paradise is to be with the Lord. It's a place only for the righteous. Those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ's sacrifice. So when looking at those two views, I know one thing we talked about when we started talking about uh, different views of eschatology, that there's, right. there's, a, there's a direct correlation between the time and what was happening historically and culturally at that time. Do you see a flip-flop back and forth between those two views that you just stated, or are they kind of mixed in with each other regardless of what is happening culturally? It's a, it's, it is legitimately a, little, a, legitimately a little bit of both. You've got... So in the early church, there is very quickly... Um, there's a devotion to Mary and the martyrs so early that their devotion to Mary and the martyrs 
pre-exists their agreement upon of the New Testament canon. We've talked about this. The church believed that the martyrs went to the beatific vision. They didn't go to paradise. Because in Revelation, the martyrs are enthroned. Revelation 20. In Revelation 14, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So they believe the martyrs were with Jesus, beholding the beatific vision, which is why there was such a great devotion for them. Right? Now, when Christianity becomes legalized, martyrdom is no longer a thing in the Roman Empire. Like, it's not happening in, in, in any of the ways that it, that it had been happening. So people begin to honor those who live saintly lives. They're heroes of the Christian faith. They, they, they burn through grace like 747s burn through jet fuel. And so you see this distinction now so that this, these heroes are honored and revered like Mary and the martyrs are, and the heroes are believed to go to paradise for a little bit, and then they go into the beatific vision. So they don't go straightway in, but they go in incrementally, if you will. At the same time, uh, or actually before this, let me say this, in the, in the late 100s, Tertullian, before he's a Montanist, when he writes the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas, describes, um, you know, this is awful. I can't remember if it's Perpetua or Felicitas, which, which, which one of the ladies it is. But one of them is a young mother, like 20, 21 years old. She has a newborn baby and her baby is crying. And she's, you know, obviously she's been nursing her child. So her, her whole, you know, uh, I don't want to say her blouse, but the robe, whatever it is she's wearing, you know, is getting wet from the milk that's coming out for the baby because the baby's crying while her, one of her relatives is standing there pleading with her to renounce Christ so she can go nurse her child and live. Well, she has a dream that night in which she sees her brother, who was young when he died, in significant discomfort. Like he's not in fire or suffering, but, you know, think of the, the scary Halloween stories of, of, the, of, of ghosts that are kind of pale, you know, this kind of thing. He's, he's just, he's a sickly looking spirit. So when she wakes up from the dream, she prays to the Lord for him, for his soul. She goes back to sleep again soon thereafter, has another dream, and he is happy and refreshed. She has a whole other series of visions and dreams too that Tertullian records. But here's an example of how based upon somebody's dreams and visions, and their prayers for the dead, you start to get this, uh, you don't get the belief. Like, it doesn't start here. It's representative of what had always been believed. The people were always praying for the dead to be at peace. Here is the seed form of purgatory. But it doesn't, the church doesn't quickly go from praying for the dead to be at peace in the presence of the Lord to full concepts of purgatory and indulgences for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So, does time have an impact on this? It does. Because it re- these practices and understanding what's happening in Hades, both referring to paradise and Gehenna, all of that is predicated, not all of it, much of it is predicated upon the other beliefs and practices they have going on at the same time. So the church largely has confessed paradise. And if you even open up our own, our own prayer book, and you start looking at, you know, at the communion of the saints. We talk about paradise. We pray about it. 
uh, one of our collects says that, you know, oh, eternal Lord God, you hold all souls in life. Shed forth upon your whole church in paradise, capital P, paradise, and on earth the bright beams of your light and heavenly comfort. And grant that we, following the good example of those who have loved and served you here and are now at rest, may enter with them into the fullness of your unending joy. So, and there's other spots in the prayer book where the, you know, we, we pray for paradise. We pray for the people in paradise. We don't pray for people who are in a, a, um, a hellish torment to be escaped because that's the only way they can get out. We, we don't see things like that in scripture. We don't see things like that in the early fathers. And we also don't baptize for the dead. Correct. Correct. Like that. Correct. Even though in that case, there's actually a sentence in scripture that talks about it. These other things that's not there, but it's the progression of the soul, which is kind of why I started talking about these particularities. It's the progression of the soul after death that the book of Revelation describes at length through its various pictures and what Paul refers to hints at about the judgment seat being fiery in 1 Corinthians 3, that there's something that's happening and we make a, 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 an illogical, presumptuous leap that the moment we die, our spirits go right into the unmediated presence of God without there being any kind of particular judgment without there being any kind of, of reckoning for who and what we've done and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I don't want to get into that too much because we want to really emphasize the Lord's work when he was in Hades. So you've got Hades, you've got the lake of, uh, you've got Gehenna, you've got Paradise, you've got Tartarus, and you've got the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the ultimate hell. Like, that's the end. Because death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the final judgment that's eternal. So this, this explains why some people believe, and Augustine says it might be possible, he's not sure. It's why some people believe that baptized believers go to Hades, they're in, they're in Hades in the fiery side, and then they would go to paradise. You see what I'm saying? Like the, the, the rich man is in torment, and he would be in torment for however long, and by some unknown means, he makes it into paradise where Lazarus is, that God moves him across the chasm, and then he gets to, to, to the beatific vision. So these, these are like the incremental steps through Christian history that get into ideas of purgatory. Okay? And that's important when we talk about Halloween. We'll come back to that in a minute. But does that make sense? Or am I confusing everybody? No, it, it, makes, it makes sense. Okay. It makes sense to me too. Okay. Because, you know, I always thought about purgatory. I was thinking about it occasionally. Because about when going? You read... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it's actually, it's on my uh, travel list, you know? Oh, my, my I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, uh, just, when you think about Christian history and how things are developed, and I think about, you know, purgatory is a big one. I'm in a lot of groups on Facebook, mm -hmm. which I shall not name. Okay. But they always, you know, throw shade at different uh, theological perspectives, sometimes a bit too much more than what they should. And so purgatory is one of those things that's always thrown out in that group. And I always read what everybody has to say about it. I never say anything about purgatory, but I just read it. So it's, it's good to see the historical, like what you're saying here, the historical um, progression of it. Yeah. Well, 
a lot of where they come from is like the same idea of that we talked about earlier, the two contrasting historic ideas that um, the people who were in paradise are then brought into the beatific vision. The idea is that is what Jesus does. You know, like that's, that is their logic that he conquered. Oh, like he, he conquers certain things. So if we are in Christ and he has already conquered them, how can we be subject to them? Like that, that's their logic. That's why, so to what they would argue to, to your point of why they don't like the idea of purgatory or purgation is because you are diminishing or lessening what Jesus did. It's a disagreement on what we're getting ready to talk about. What exactly did Jesus do? And that's a, so the idea, it's a false belief or it's not, it's not fully rounded out there for argument's sake. Let's grant that there's purgatory. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's grant that there is. That's a big for argument's sake. That, that no, is, that, it's a big one. It's a big one. I know it is, but for argument's sake, just go with me here because one of the things that helps us process theology and how theological principles are at work is for the purpose of argument, grant it, and then start reasoning out from it, okay? And you will discover either how absurd it is, like you're demonstrating just how absurd it is, or you're also demonstrating that while it may not be right, what you think about it is incorrect. And here, purgatory is a perfect example. If there is a purgatory, how do you get there? You just die. Death, I'd say, would definitely be a uh, prerequisite. Okay. Who goes there? It would be still uh, Christian cr people. Christians, or those baptized or intending to be baptized. Christian or Christianized people, I guess. Would be. Only people who have been baptized. Only Christians would go to purgatory. Because what is it? A place of purgation. Yeah. Processing. Yes, it is a fiery expectation of judgment, 1 Corinthians 3. It is, according to the prophets of the Old Testament, the, re the refiner's fire taking away the dross to purify the silver and the gold and the precious metals. And your stay in purgatory is utterly dependent upon the way that you lived your life. So the only way that you can go into the beatific vision into God's presence and behold him is to be like Jesus. And because God wants you to be made like Jesus, and you didn't take advantage of all the sanctifying means of grace that he made for you in life, after death, he will sanctify you through that process of, of not torment, but fire. Mm. So it's like, it's, imagine that you've got frostbite. And you come now into a warm home and you, it's like when, or not even frostbite necessarily, but your, your fingers are so cold. You come in and you put them over a fire. What do you feel? Nothing. Or pain. Sometimes You feel hurts. pain. It hurts when oh. your limbs start to heat back up and the blood goes back into your appendages like that. You, you feel pain. So just amplify that exponentially. So that's the idea is that you've been in the cold and the Lord's putting you in a fire to prepare you to be made into the image of Jesus. Or you're steel, and you haven't been shaped properly, so he puts you in the fire to shape you. So it's not destructive for you, but it is destructive for the chaff of your works. That's what it means. That's what they're saying. 
The problem is the way that purgatory was, uh, it, didn't, it didn't stay restricted to that because if it did, you wouldn't have had nearly, you, nobody's going to reform against that. Not principally. The Luther's problem was that they were selling indulgences. They were selling the means to get people out of purgatory. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, is what Tetzel said. And Rome shut that down when they heard about it. So there, that's, that's this. So here's the benefit of granting an idea. Say, well, just grant for a moment that it's true. All right. Now, everything we just said about purgatory, except for it being a place of fire and it being a place, everything else we just mentioned is scriptural and it's right. There is a fiery expectation of judgment. There is the, the, the um, fire being set to our works. There is the, the, the purifier, you know, the refiner working through us, taking away the dross of what we are. How does that happen? And when does that happen? And so since the Reformation, there's been more disagreement on that than before it. But before it, there was still disagreement, which is where I think the prayer book is right on because the prayer book doesn't try to settle disagreements like that. It just shuts out the abusive, the Romish purgatory, it shuts that out and says, no, this isn't right. There's no indulgences. There's no being bought out of this. None of like that is happening. But in the prayer book, we pray with the dead. We pray for the dead. We pray for those that are in paradise. We give thanks for those who have lived lives of testimony as our heroes. So all of that practice is baked into our, into our lives as Anglicans. It's all there. What does Jesus do to kind of come away now from, from purgatory, per se, unless you guys think we need to talk about that some more? No, I, you hit it in the nail pretty well. That's good. Okay. What does Jesus do then when he goes into Hades? Okay, I just want to interject my thought process. Now, not, this is not going to be a super theological perspective, but you guys ever seen, like, you know, like, Aragorn? You know, about to go tear up like 50 orcs at the I same thought time. he was going to do Bill and Ted's bogus journey when they go defeat death. No, I, <laughs> no, stop. Not like that. You know, I think about like the Lord triumphing like in that process, just like tearing up the kingdom of darkness, just cutting them apart. That's what I think about, honestly. That's, that's a lot of fantasy there. That's, I mean, I'm not saying it's theological. I'm saying like that's what I, I think. I mean, Keith Green's you think song, about like you know, his work. Yeah, Keith Green talks about the Lord breaking through the wall. You know, the demons are shouting. Have you heard that one from Keith Green? The Victor song? I, I'm not acquainted with that, that one as well. That's a good one. Anyway. That's, that's a, what I think about. Well, Tolkien wants you to think about it. That's why he wrote it like that. Because uh, Aragorn going through the paths of the dead is clearly a reference uh, to, to the creed. What does the Lord do in, in Hades? Well, first, a pious opinion, belief, that is believed by the early church is that they knew he was coming. They knew the Lord was coming. You probably know this, because we've talked about it. Why do you, Josh, why do you think the early because church Because he said, called ahead and he made reservations. No, 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 think about it. Think about the scriptures for a minute. Because who you are right now is what you will be on the other side. You don't become somebody different. Why would the early church have taught that they were waiting for him? that they were waiting for him beyond the general, which is important, but the general hope that a Messiah was coming. The prophecies that had come before. Uh, it's Genesis. More, it's more, no, no, much more specific. 
I don't remember us talking about this, um, but my guess would be because they knew the plan. Mm, no. John the Baptist. Okay, that technically John the Baptist. what I said. Oh, man, okay. John the Baptist had already been beheaded, and he's already in paradise. So he was his former in there, too? Yes. So John the Baptist, they don't call him John the Baptist in the East. They call him John the Forerunner. So he's the Forerunner in Israel, and he's the Forerunner in Hades. So he's announcing to David. He's announcing to Isaiah. He's announcing to Jeremiah. He's announcing to all of them that the Messiah is coming. I don't, I think that's not, I, I agree with that, but I, I think the knowledge that they had even beforehand was sufficient Based on because what? the plan of redemption wasn't made. They didn't at, know it. Yeah, they didn't. So that's secret knowledge. No, no, no. Okay. Hebrews 11, right. You're talking about this. They said that they, they believed, but they didn't know what it was going to look like. Hebrews 11, right. Hebrews says they, they, they received the promise, yeah. but they didn't know, um, they don't no, understand I, the import of it. And then Peter says in his letter that the prophets prophesied, but they didn't know what it was about. So it's not disclosed to them in its entirety. Do they have the expectation that there will be a Messiah? Yeah. But do they have the kind of details that they have when John shows up? No. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and... Um clarify my statement <laughs> i thought we were i did i did not think we were talking about those in paradise but rather like the idea of uh demonic powers oh, fighting oh, against oh. yes i got gotcha. you yes i that's why i'm like what are y'all like, like yeah, we're sorry. talking about angelic my fallen, fault. fallen angelic well, beings so, so this you know, is, yeah like, so here's sorry my bad i did yeah. not make that transition no, here's logically. the thing about his binding of, of the principalities that happens on the cross. So he already kicked their butts there. So yeah, that's what I'm like. John 12, he says, now is the prince of this world cast out. And that's in reference to the crucifixion. We don't understand it, and we need to. We really, really need to understand this. The, reser- the, the crucifixion of Jesus is his victory. That's when he wins. The resurrection just proves that the cross was the victory. I think it's a valuable point. So when he goes into Hades, does he, as is popularized, does he steal the keys from the devil and now he's in charge? And I mean, that's great dramatics. You know, that's great stuff for plays and for, for devotional thoughts and considerations to a certain extent. But realistically, he binds the strong man while he's dying. And it's at his death that the temple veil is ripped in half, and now there is access into the heavenlies, into heaven itself. Which logically makes sense when you, when you think of through the lens of the sacrificial system. Right. So what does he do in Hades? Well, Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 4, 6, he says, this is why the gospel was preached even to the dead, that though judged in the flesh like men, they, they might live in the spirit like God. And modern commentators really aren't sure what to do with this, but the fathers don't have a problem saying, no, he went and he preached. He did not euangelion, and here's the difference, 
euangelion, the good news to evangelize, Jesus doesn't go and evangelize in Hades. He doesn't do that. He goes with charisma. He goes with pronouncement. So he preaches the gospel. The facts have been accomplished. And it's in that announcement of the accomplishment of the facts that the people who have been in paradise waiting for him, some, here's, here's this whole progression of the soul after death. And here's something that the gospel, the gospel hits on that, again, contemporary thinkers have a hard time with. And there's differentiation. And here's what it is, all right? Does he take people in his train, like, his, like a king's train, does, not a choo-choo train, but his victory train, his processional, does he take people into the heavens? According to Ephesians 4, he does, right? According to the Gospel of Matthew, there are some that he raises from the dead physically. That's, that, yeah. that they walk around the city of Jerusalem. But then according to Peter, in, on the day of Pentecost, David's still in his tomb. So look at the different classifications there. There are some that are raised spiritually, some that are raised bodily, and then there are others whose bodies still lie in the grave and they wait for the resurrection. So there's already some sort of differentiation in the first fruits of the resurrection, which is Christ himself and what he did after he announced to the spirits in paradise. Now, everybody heard it. The spirits in prison, the spirits in fire, they all heard it because God descended into hell and transforms the underworld. And so it, it's a good distinction. It's a good particularity for us to remember that when Paul refers to paradise, he doesn't say, I was taken down to paradise. He says, I was caught up into paradise. So while we shouldn't and we cannot think of heaven and hell geographically, we can think of them in a real way as almost topographically. There's, there's, there's something in the geographic world that we observe with our natural senses that is reflective of the spiritual side of things. So paradise is up now. It's not down. But is it the beatific vision? No, it's not that either. Not necessarily. And all you got to do for us to explain more of that is to go again back into the Revelation, to go into the temple, uh, the way the temple itself is built with its various courts um, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I have using, uh, I don't know if it's holy imagination. I guess it might be, who knows. Um, thinking about the people who were, who were raised back to life. And like, what did that look like? Was that like a, hey, bye? Like, you know, like, like what exactly was happening there? And was there disappointment? Or was it like, okay, let's go do this. Like, I know my mission. I know my task. Yeah, the, the text doesn't indicate that it's a lot of people either. I mean, you know, many and a multitude aren't quite the same thing. So, you know, having five, 10, having 30 suddenly appear physically raised. I know? think two would be pretty cool. I mean, let alone, uh, you know, 30 yeah. would be pretty, I mean, that's pretty awesome. There are some Bible scholars who say that is a, uh, it's a foreshadowing in the gospel for the ultimate resurrection, but that's a, that's tough. That's tough because it's hard to see that in the language that Matthew, the way he describes the event. He, he connects it directly to the resurrection, and he indicates they walked around the city and talked to people. Right. That was, that was what I was going to say. Witnesses. Yeah. There are other witnesses other than just Matthew's voice in that sentence when it's, he wrote it. So there's a whole dynamic there that's just something to really reflect on. So when we think about, and to bring this now to All Hollow Tide, 
we think about All Saints Day. All Saints Day is when Jesus demonstrates his power over the world of flesh and the devil through people. And we remember those heroes who have lived lives of virtue and sacrifice and service that are worthy to be emulated. All Souls Day, which traditionally is November 2nd, the day after All Saints. All Souls Day is when we remember everybody else who's passed on. We give thanks for them, whether they were saintly or not. And these it, are feast days. All Saints Day is a feast day. All Souls Day and All Hallowtide are, are Roman feast days. Uh, well, they're Roman celebrations, and they are, there are quadrants of the Anglican world that observe Halloween and All Souls. Okay. But All Saints is one of the seven major feast days. And I think if the teaching in the local parish is done correctly, or at a diocesan or provincial level for that matter, communion-wide, if the teaching is done properly, then the whole fall triduum, triduum can be observed. And I, th I think it's that beneficial. So, so good thing about being Anglican is we have feast days. We have, where yeah. we can go to the trough. Well, the feast is, <laughs> no, no. The feast is in reference to the Eucharist. Oh, okay. Therefore, let us keep the feast, okay, not to giant go. buffets. There, uh, I always wonder why you haven't been saying that every time you pray at the trough. Right. Therefore, like, yes. uh, that's sacrilegious. I, that, yeah. I don't want to go too well, far on that one. but We are planning uh, you know, a church lunch after All Saints Day next Tuesday. Got you. After, after the Eucharist at noon. Okay. Um, in Halloween, this is All Hallows Eve. So it's Christmas Eve, like Christmas, the evening before the feast day. So here's the feast day before all hallows all hallows being all saints hallow right hallow it josh halloween what's up yeah halloween's great why well i was not allowed as a child to participate in any shenanigans involved with halloween is it because you had a thing for freddy krueger Actually, I wasn't a horror fan when I was a kid. I'm never. I'm still not now. I don't like the movies. I I, I used to watch them. Freddy Krueger's TV show when it came on Saturday nights at eleven. <laughs> <laughs> I just did you I, know that he had a TV show? No, I did not. I'm it's just, disgusting, man. I'm just, I remember this episode where his clawed hand went into a cookie jar, and he was supposed to pull out a cookie, and it was not a cookie. I won't even tell you. It was just. Are you good? I'm I'm just saying, like as a whole, me as <laughs> me as a entire individual, I never had inclination towards any of that stuff. I don't like it. They just they just bore me out. Like it makes me feel weird, but. About Halloween, I wasn't allowed to participate in any of the normal stuff. Like, we're not talking about anything satanic. We're just talking about, okay, dress up as, like, your favorite athlete. Okay, go down you the street. You went as Optimus Prime. I wish I could go to Optimus Prime. If I could. Their costumes, oh my gosh. Like, literally Transformers. Yeah. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, like, you know, getting to go and get free candy down the street, going to, like, a quote-unquote Halloween party somebody went to school with, I wasn't allowed to do any of that stuff. The closest thing I could get, honestly, is the church equivalent, which it really makes me laugh. It's called the Hallelujah Parties. Okay, that's awesome. Or they they do harvest parties <laughs> because that was that was a big deal. I mean, it was a big deal to have fall parties like that. It's like um, the Feast of Saint Michael and All Angels it was a big fall harvest festival, and at the end of September in the Middle Ages, Halloween. This is something that many American Christians don't know. Halloween is a Christian holiday. Why do they think it's demonic? There's a couple of reasons. One, obviously, people make it that way. But it didn't start that way. 
Halloween is a Christian holiday in preparation for All Saints Day. When you had the Dance for the Dead, people would dress up like skeletons and this kind of stuff. And they would, in a festival, festive way, remember memento mori. Remember your dust. Remember you're going to die. And so it was a way for them to face death head on. To reckon with mortality. And they did it with pageantry. They did it with costumes. They did it with that kind of stuff. It was also the dressing up of things that were diabolic, not just scary. We're going to talk about the difference in a minute, not just scary things, but they would dress up as diabolic things because they were reflecting Jesus's superiority over those diabolic things. It's in more recent history, and it's been this way throughout history, but when the practice began, it was Christ's superiority over it. Nowadays, people dress up like that stuff because they're seeking to emulate it. Okay, and there's a big difference there. So we have to keep that in mind when we think about Christian celebrations of Halloween. The other thing to bring up about this is the teaching against Halloween has come out of the same Puritan circles that also taught against Christmas and Easter bunny and Easter eggs because of Easter. So it comes from the same Puritan perspective that you can't, you can't observe this or celebrate it. And they raise the, so the Puritan influencer is very strong and it does raise an important point in this regard because Halloween has changed as a holiday. It has changed so that witches and in the words of Ozzy, which is in black masses, um, they are celebrated instead of embodied because they've been dethroned. So we have to keep that in mind. Now, let me go on and say this, and we'll come back and we'll kick around some of these uh, ideas more here in a moment. There's a difference between fear and what is scary and what is morally and spiritually evil. Those two things are not the same. So there are some folks that will quote the scripture that says that the fear of the Lord uh, not the fear of the Lord, uh, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. And so they would say, anytime you get scared, that, that's the devil. No, no. If you are uh, hiking on a, a steep incline and your foot slips and you're near the precipice of the edge, you have fear. It's called adrenaline. Your body's kicking into high gear so you don't fall off a cliff and die. So fear is a very useful tool. It's a very good thing. It's a natural principle in the body for survival. Fight or flight. Or, uh, I don't know, I even think of the giving of the law. Yeah. That sounds scary. Like, I would be, I think a lot of people like to think I'd be Moses. No, I'd be that little boy who's hiding behind his mom, like, like I'm going to die. This is bad. This mountain is shaking. Yes. Well, Fire, that was the thing smoke. about that whole thing, that story. Um, how the Israelites, they were invited to, to that. Yeah. And they said, no, we're going to stay in our tents. <laughs> right. We're not coming out. Think of, think of, um, so you got Sinai. Why is the flood of Noah children's decorations? It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. When you think about a flood of water that destroys everything. You've got to go back and look at the old artwork, not this new stuff in bathrooms and nurseries. Go back and look at the old artwork of those last pinnacles of earth 
that are that are extending out over the di- the deep as the rain is still coming down of these people wishing they were on the boat and they're dying they're drowning to death that's the flood the flood is not a children's story scripture is terrifying the scripture says that god is terrible we don't conceptualize this we think of him as just sweet daddy god even like even worse like he's just He's, he's warm sunshine on a, on a happy afternoon. Now, granted, the Lord is good, and he, does, he gives us those good gifts, but there's this equal sense of terror. So when, the, when we read Paul say, you know, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, he's, Paul's talking to Timothy about being timid and sharing the gospel with boldness. He's not talking about fear in the way that people use the term and articulate it. And this has direct relation to Halloween. There is the use of the day by various cults, witches and sorcerers and black magic and, and all this nefarious stuff. Do they use the day for their dark deeds? Yes. Is there a rise in seances and Ouija boards and um, animal sacrifices that, that sounds ridiculous or RSA, ritual satanic abuse? Is, does all that stuff happen on Halloween? It does. It does, and it's atrocious. And I think, as I mentioned last year when we talked about this, the church is in a position to either reclaim this holiday as preparation for All Saints Day, or to utterly yield it to the culture and let it completely disappear. And in many ways, it's already disappeared. So it's almost like a uh, revivification. Revivification. Oh, man. A reviving. <laughs> reviving of a ceremony or of a practice of an observance because of its attachment to All Saints Day. So it's not an accident that the churches that protest Halloween will also protest All Saints. That's typically go hand in hand here. Um, we want to find a way to capture the Christian roots of Halloween and scary things and fearful things, they have a place in that. But spiritually dark things, morally evil things, satanic things, witchcraft, the, the real kind of, none of that stuff ever has a place in the people of God. And so there are Christians who, when they hear that Halloween was a Christian holiday, they suddenly run out and begin to celebrate all the dark things of this, of this, of, as if it's okay. And that's not okay. It's the Christian root for it. So you take, it's like someone when they discover, they come out of a very strict Christian background, and they realize that the gospel has a whole lot more permissions in it than they were raised to believe that it does. And they go overboard in excess. And they don't realize that they're, creating, they're, they're, they're going into a different kind of danger and into a different kind of sinful disposition. But a wholesale rejection of Halloween and its Christian emphasis is part of the reason we have the other problems that we have today. We don't have a theology of death. We don't have a theology of suffering. The Methodists and many other Christian groups in, in, in uh, England and in Europe in, in their beginning centuries highlighted Christian death and prepared for it, and used it as a means of evangelization. That, that's how they 
shared the gospel with people was how they arranged the fairs for their families, for the church, and, and when they died. Halloween, if it's rightly observed, you take scary images. You, you take things that are, that are utterly disgusting. It's going it's to sound really, really, really weird to some listeners, and others are going to take what I'm going to say, and they're going to use it the wrong way. But that doesn't mean we don't say it, because you have to initiate the conversation and, and really begin working through it. There's, there's something in Halloween where you take the thing that's really, really disgusting, something that is representative of death, that fully embodies that, and you look at it square in the face. And I'm not saying watch Hellraiser. That's not what I'm talking about. But because that's what people hear. Well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go watch something that's, you know, intentionally dark. I'm going to turn on, you know, the Ouija board movies and I'm going to feel myself get sucked into that because that's how Jesus showed his victory. That's, that's not how you do this. But there is something about looking at what's dark and finding a way and find a way to do this in a local church. Bring people into it with you because it's one thing for, for people to dress up like they're superheroes and, uh, you know, go get candy. All right. Th that that's because that's how you'd mentioned hallelujah parties. If, if churches don't do hallelujah parties and they do that, they just do like their own versions of trunk retreat or something. Okay. Hey, I mean, get free candy, but there's, there's much more at work here. And so how do you take the dark thing directly confront it? And show the superiority of Jesus because you're not afraid of it. And that's not something that we can come to a quick answer on because the culture is so divided and the church has been so fractured over this for such a long time. How do you do that? So you've got to build a measure of consensus and do a good level of teaching and, and instruction on it. Then you could start to kind of embody that to reclaim that Jesus is the God over and of death. See, this is part of the, 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 um, the dichotomy, the dualism, that, the, that Halloween is the devil's holiday. It's the devil's day. And the devil gets to rule the earth and roam around and take power over everything. No, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. Halloween is the emphasis that he's already been defeated and bound because he wasn't just beaten by Jesus. He was beaten by the people through whom Jesus worked, the saints who were celebrated the next day. And not only that, but even those Christians who didn't live up to their potential, who were celebrated on All Souls Day, have triumphed over the enemy because of Jesus. There's a way to do this, and it's not, it's not a quick way to figure out. It's not easy, but I think we got to do it. It's not the devil's day. But learn how. we got to figure out how to, to, you know, I don't know if it's, if it's you start the dance of the macabre. I don't know if you start doing that. I don't know what it is. I know that reclaiming Halloween as a Christian holiday isn't dressing up um, in cosplay or to go LARPing. As fun as that stuff is, I'm not knocking any of that, right? But there's a, there's a way in which to, to take back what has been taken. You know, we used to sing this in the Pentecostal churches I was in. Oh, I know where you're going uh, with this. I went to the enemy's camp and uh, took back what he stole from I me. I took back what he stole from me, right? He's under my feet. He's under my feet, baby. We had motions for that and everything else. It was like... Uh, I'm in the Lord's army, you know, um, not the Lord's army in Africa. That's atrocious. I mean, the actual song that we used to sing in VBSs and things, you know, thank uh, you for clarifying. Yeah. I went straight to the African <laughs> military. Thank I got to clarify that. Um, but you, you can't yield that stuff. And I, and I think this is where it's incumbent upon Christians in this generation to really start to stand up and say, we're not going to yield this. 
We're not going to yield these traditions because the next thing, it's, and it's already happened. It's already happened. Thanksgiving is a Christian holiday. It started in the church. It didn't start in the medieval Catholic church. It started as a Protestant practice in America, but it's still a Christian holiday. Thanksgiving is. What do, we, what do we call it? What do people call it today? Turkey Day. Turkey Day. What did they remove from it? Thanks. And what's the ultimate Thanksgiving in the New Testament? The, the Eucharist. The Eucharist, because Eucharist Deo is translated as Thanksgiving. It's the feast. Right. The there trough. No. It's a legendary trough. <laughs> Cut that last part off, and you were right. <laughs> We've already, we're already yielding Thanksgiving and just calling it Turkey Day. Christmas is next. Christmas is already so commercialized. I know Christians who won't celebrate it, not because um, they disagree with the theological premises the, uh, like some of the Puritans have, but because it's become too commercialized for them. Mm. Why am I going to go buy Christmas lights that have been made by slave labor uh, from Chinese prisons? Why am I going to buy a bunch of goods that were, that were made overseas in sweatshops? They back away from it altogether because of the over-commercialization. The, over and since most American evangelical churches don't have Christmas on Sunday, they don't have a service on, on, not Sunday, they don't have a service on Christmas Day, Jesus isn't even getting the honor by the churches. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a big thing. Because a lot of people, even when they're like talking about Halloween, they bring up the Celtic, a small uh, region's holiday. To say this is why it's bad. That's right. like saying um, if someone had a birthday, like the same birthday as like the queen or the king, um, you know, like, oh, uh, you know, I don't want to celebrate the king's birthday. Right. Like every, or every, nobody else should celebrate the king's birthday because today is my birthday. And I know only 15 people recognize me or know that. Yeah. It's you, backwards. It, it's very backwards. But I think the whole idea of taking days back. Like th that concept, I think it's very powerful um, be because it, it may have started back then, but I think for us today to keep that and to p keep passing that on to our families. I mean, you know, I'm just getting wildly speculative here, but maybe you have a, a bonfire, a Halloween bonfire, and this may be way off. I'm probably even be sh shouldn't even be saying it, but you have a Halloween bonfire and everybody dresses up as something ghoulish. And then you have a worship set. Can you imagine? I just, I, I just think that'd be cool. I just imagine Thriller. <laughs> to like, I mean, like I said, like I don't know. But you see what I'm saying? There, there's, yeah. and I'm not. I, by no means am I saying that we do that because that's going to violate so many people's consciences. And this is why it's difficult because there's got to be a way to begin the process. And I, I think just very shooting from the hip here, it would be celebrating like directly those who were victorious. Yeah. I, so instead of going to the dark and because a lot of the, the darkness came from the, the theatrical experiences that were happening in the street. Right. Like those that were dressing up as darkness because then there was a victor that through Christ. Right. In his power. Right. And so I think going through that aspect of celebrating um, victory in Christ. I know a lot of, a lot of churches, I know a number of Roman Catholic parishes that they, uh, when the kids get ready for Halloween, they dress up as their favorite martyr. 
so they know the story of the martyr, then they, they've dressed like the martyr. And you say, isn't that kind of macabre? Well, one, that's the point. But then two, have you looked at the icons of the martyrs? They're holding the instruments by which they died on. Oh, wait, are you wearing a cross around your neck? See, we, we've become desensitized mm-hmm. to these things. I have Ignatius every day staring at me with two, two lines hanging off of them. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So uh, there's ways to do this. So the proper understanding of Halloween, again, because this we went over this first time, we had an episode on Halloween. Yeah. But the proper understanding of Halloween and its actual origins in Christianity help us to be better, um, spread the gospel. Yeah, to- so in the, in, in, in the uh, early medieval church, All Saints Day was celebrated in the spring. And I want to say 700 or so, seven, 800, somewhere in that time window, I believe. Um, the church moved it from the spring to November 1st. And that's when all these, uh, the, the, the hollow, the all tide sprang up, began to develop. The line of argumentation that Halloween is Samhain and the Druid, Druidic holiday of going around with turnips, that's not true. Because Samhain wasn't celebrated in the fall, it was celebrated in the spring. And it was a spring holiday that the Druids kept when they had a whole series of of celebrations that they were doing that was entirely disconnected, both in time and geography, from the development of All Hallows' Eve and the various celebrations that were connected with that. They did not go hand in hand. Do you have a mingling of things... And when I use the word things, I'm, I'm, that I'm using a very indefinite term on purpose because it's of lots of things were involved in this. Was there a mingling of some of those points coming into the United States because of the, the melting pot as our nation has been? There was, but that was not what Halloween had been. And I think the best way now to make it as an analogy is like, let's look back, like, Americans, we don't shy away from talking about World War One, World War Two. I think we back back to back World War champs. Like we don't play. Like you know, mess around and find out. Like, but that's our attitude when we look back on it. We don't think right. of it as like we remember the sacrifice. But when we look at those, we're like we were victorious. Mm-hmm. We were winners. We weren't losers. Like that's. A lot of times, I think when we look back, we we don't look at the spiritual victories, or our we don't look at our religious life in the same way, and we don't celebrate it nearly as much. When the victory that Jesus had was far more, what he accomplished, it had did and is still accomplishing through the the blood of martyrs, right? Is is right. incredible, right? That's the. The victory, even our faith, that's the victory that overcomes the world. So I think as we, as we tie this down this week, the Lord descended into hell with the announcement of his victory on the cross and ransomed those that were waiting for him. Halloween, while it's celebrated at a, diff- at a, at a different time of the year, is Halloween because it's in preparation for All Saints Day. Those people that he took to victory then and the people he's been taking to victory since. And we would do well as God's people to figure out how do we observe, celebrate his victory in his people in a way that 
that mocks the devil in all the ways that he should be mocked. And I think practically finding a way to follow through with that. Mm -hmm. I know when this comes out, you will only have like, what, three days? It'll be the 28th yeah. um, when this pops, this comes out. Um, you have a weekend to think about it. Yeah. Ponder on that. What does that look like for you and for your family? Um, what are the traditions that you want to start to, to remember this or the traditions that you want to continue that the church always has? And how can you get your church involved? That, that's a big part of it. How can you get a church to do it? Aside from just a drunk retreat. And if that's all you can do, hey, I mean, you know, figure out a way to share the Lord. And I've known Christians who are like, I'm not doing a drunk retreat. I'm just, it, it invites the devil to be involved. Well, that, that's what you're saying. It's why that when I'm hearing, again, our topic talk about Halloween as a whole being a Christian holiday, we need to do a better job of it, taking opportunities to evangelize because we're talking about Jesus victoriously going into hell and preaching, you know, pronouncements to these things. And then he's already won it. I mean, is he not worthy enough for us to tell people about him, you know, who are out there? Because I see all over the place, even before Halloween happened, a bunch of my friends, like, they are fascinated with some of the darker edges of, of this stuff that uh, Bishop Phil was hit with when he right. walked through the supermarket. Right. And how else are some of these people going to hear it unless you speak up and say no? Right. Because Correct. if you start messing with Ouija boards, if you're going to seances, if you're doing a little, little white magic, if you're doing, I'm not even going to start to name it because I don't want to open up the doors for people into to dark things. Um, that's wrong. That's a gateway into, into the demonic. That's not Halloween. That's not a celebration of the saints' victory over darkness. That's not what that is. That's imitation and participation at the altar of devils. We're not talking about that. We're talking about everything we've already said. Jesus is better. Jesus is victory in the saints, through the saints. There's only one body of Christ. Go back and listen to last week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope that clears it up for the, the question we got from a couple folks on the topic, that revisiting it again, these two different aspects was helpful. And I know next week, I'm not going to say what we're going to do next week. I know we've got it written, but... Secrets. You, you got to tune back in. It's going to be a surprise. Surprise, surprise. So if there's any further questions concerning what Jesus, what Jesus did when he went, descended into hell, um, you can email Father Daryl at daryl at ascensionwv.org. That's correct. That's how many R's, how many L's? Five Two R's, one L. Yeah. And we know some of you do like and follow us on Facebook, so that is also a way uh, to get a hold of us uh, through messaging through our Facebook. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I mean, we, this isn't on YouTube for us to say smash that like button and subscribe, but uh, if you could feel free to share these with friends and family and, and to pass them around. Indeed. Unless, so, of course, you don't like us, and then you don't have to worry about it. So, right, you know, yeah, disregard the last yeah, part yeah, we just yeah, said. Yeah, don't listen to him. Yeah. So that, that's going to wrap us up for this particular episode. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl.